What is this, a new teaching and with authority? Jesus, we pray that you would speak to us now and that we would hear your voice and anything that is not of you, uh, we would discard and throw away. Speak now, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat as grades four to six make their way to the lobby. And this morning, we continue through the season of Epiphany, witnessing each week how Jesus is continually revealed to us as God. Last week, Rob did a great job of showing from the text how Jesus was not just another rabbi or human teacher. And this was made clear by how Jesus called his first disciples at the Sea of Galilee. So Rob showed how his disciples didn't choose Jesus As was customary, Jesus sovereignly and chose and invited them. Secondly, they were called not simply to follow Jesus' teaching, they were called to follow Jesus himself. And Rob showed us how the disciples didn't change themselves by following a teaching. Jesus changed them as they followed him. So Jesus was shown to be not just another human teacher, but the God who chooses, calls, and changes us. This morning, we continue to see Jesus revealed as God, this time not by the seaside, but in the synagogue, specifically through two examples of his authority. I'm going to suggest that Jesus exhibits two types of authority in our text. One is the authority of being an expert or the master of a subject, And the other is the authority of possessing power to act in a situation. And I think we we appeal to these types of authorities all the time. For example, if we're writing a paper on Shakespeare, uh, to make our point, we have to acknowledge, we have to cite acknowledged authorities on on Shakespeare to make our point. Or if we have an issue with our coffee and we're not getting anywhere with the barista, we have to speak to the manager someone who has the authority or the power to act in a certain situation. So, we, so Jesus exhibits both of these types of authority in our text today, and I'm going to just take them one at a time. The first one is the authority of an expert. Verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority not as the teachers of the law. Now, the teachers of the law, or the scribes, were the professional interpreters of the law of Moses in the Jewish synagogues. Their job was to explain the meaning of the law to the people, and they did this primarily by citing authorities. This sounds familiar. This is partly what we preachers do every Sunday. We attempt to explain the meaning of the scriptures by appealing to an interpretive tradition. And we have 2,000 years of creeds and councils and fathers and theologians and mystics and teachers and commentators that we can cite in order to try to interpret and apply the scriptures. We might, if we're uh, Hosea, appeal to Augustine, right? Your favorite. Uh, Or we might appeal to Catherine of Siena. Or we might appeal to C.S. Lewis or more, more contemporary commentators. The scribes would have appealed to Hillel or Shammai or the oral law or the tradition of the elders. But Jesus was very different. When he taught on the law, he didn't cite authorities or the oral tradition. 
In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, we, we find him using the formula, you have heard that it was said. In other words, the recognized authorities say this about the law, but I tell you. But I tell you. What a guy. <laughs> the teachers of the law were offended at this, and I can understand why they're offended at this. If I invited a guest preacher to St. Peter's and he or she stood up and they said, the Christian tradition through the centuries, they got it wrong. I'm going to tell you the real interpretation of the Bible. I'd be like, nope. <laughs> I'd be furious. But verse 22 says that the people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. So the scribes appealed to authorities. Jesus taught as one who had authority. And here we arrive at the epiphany theme today. The reason Jesus taught the law as one who had authority is because he is the author of the law. I think it's easy to forget this. And at times like this, we need to really exercise or really fall back on our Trinitarian theology. Sometimes we think that you know, Jesus is coming onto the scene and he's kind of rejecting a past tradition and doing something totally new. But we know he can't be doing that because he is the God of Israel. He is the God who gave the law to Moses. Back to the Shakespeare example. I can remember being in seminars in university where we would be discussing different interpretations of Shakespeare. Uh, the, the professor would say, you know, here's three or four different interpretations of this play, and then we would discuss them. What did Shakespeare really mean? Well, so-and-so says this, this authority says this, and so-and-so says that. But imagine if somehow Shakespeare got into Doc Brown's DeLorean and showed up in that seminar in the flesh. So now we have Shakespeare showing up in the seminar. He would teach as one with authority because he's the author. You have heard that it was said, or this professor is telling you X, but I meant this. And that's what would happen if Jesus showed up today. I would get down and say, listen to him. Don't listen to me. Listen to him. So that's what's happening with Jesus in our text. He taught as one with authority because he is the author, and the common people intuited it. They could sense it. I'll take it further and say that Jesus is not only the author of the, the law, he's also the ultimate subject of the law, and he is the fulfillment of the law. Let's just touch on those briefly. First, he's the ultimate subject of the law. Remember that story in Luke chapter 24? There's a story about two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus uh, walks alongside them, but in classic Jesus form, he's hidden from them somehow, and they don't recognize him. In this story, the risen Jesus opens the, the scriptures, that is what we would call the Old Testament, so that the disciples, so, so that Jesus could show the disciples that the law and the prophets were ultimately written about him. The text says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And we don't know what he said to those disciples what I would give to find out. But here are some examples of what might have been illuminated. 
in Adam, we see the true Adam, not the father according to the flesh, but the head of a new humanity. In Noah, the only just man in a wicked world, we see the true Noah, the sinless one in a world of sinners. Through the wooden ark of the cross, we are saved from the flood of sin and death in the waters of baptism. In Melchizedek, we see the true king of justice and the great king of peace, the eternal priest who offers the bread and wine to God most high. In Isaac, we see the dearly beloved son of the father who in obedience to his father allowed himself to be bound upon the altar of wood. He carried the wood for the sacrifice up the mountain upon which he was to die. In the ram caught in the thicket, we see the lamb of God who was sacrificed in our stead that we might live. In Joseph, we see the one who was betrayed and sold by his brothers and given over to the Gentiles. But he was released from his prison to be made ruler over the whole land, saving the people from the famine of death. He then forgave those who sold him. In the image of the snake lifted up in the wilderness, we see the one lifted up from the earth to draw all people to himself, that all might look to him to be healed. In Job, we see the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who resigned himself to the will of God, and though his body was destroyed, in his flesh he now sees God. In the prophecy of Daniel, we see the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days, coming in the clouds of heaven and ruling over all the nations. In the tabernacle, in the temple, we see the one who tabernacled among us, offering himself as the sacrifice for our purification as the great high priest. In Joshua, we see the one who leads us into the promised land, something that Moses and his law could not do by his victory over all the powers that oppress us. In David, we see the great king, victorious over the giant by way of the most unlikely weapon, not five smooth stones, but five holy wounds upon the cross. In Jonah, we see the one entombed for three days and three nights, not in the belly of the fish, but in the belly of the earth. In the Psalms, we see David's son and David's Lord, the anointed one, whose hands and feet were pierced, but who has gone up with a shout and now rules over all the nations. In Isaiah, we see the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. In the Passover lamb, we see the lamb of God whose blood was spilt and applied to the post and lintel of the cross for our deliverance. We could go on, but the point is that once we have been given eyes to see, we see Jesus on every page of the law and the prophets. And this is what happened with, with St. Paul on the road to Damascus. He was a Pharisee, remember. He was an expert in the law, an expert in the law, but he didn't know what the law meant until he met Jesus. It's not a coincidence that in that story we see something like scales falling from his eyes, right? He was blinded to what the law meant, and then he met Jesus in a blinding flash of light who illuminated that the law was actually about him. He could see that Jesus was not only the author of the law, but the subject and the fulfillment of the law. In his letter to the Romans, St. Paul writes that Jesus is the end or the telos of the law, the aim or the purpose of the law. So we fulfill the law not by our own scrupulous striving and our own strength, but by being united to him by faith. So that's our first point. Jesus exhibits authority of an expert in the law because as God, Jesus is the author of the law, and he's also the subject and the fulfillment of it. Secondly, Jesus exhibits authority by showing his power to act. 
which is really his power over all other powers. Verse 23. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. People were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. I spent some time this week looking into the first century Jewish understanding of exorcism. The first century Jewish historian Josephus described exorcism as a skill or a technique that was handed down in a tradition from Solomon. Josephus calls, tells of an exorcism that he witnessed. And this is crazy. I, I, I didn't quite know what to make of this. And I, I looked at it like, is this really what is being said? But I was reading Josephus where he talks about an exorcist using a special ring with a root attached to it to pull the demon out of a person's nostrils. Uh, exorcism would also include the mentioning of Solomon's name and reciting certain incantations that Solomon had supposedly composed. A contemporary of Josephus described the practice of burning the roots of herbs under a possessed person to encourage the demon to depart. In any case, exorcism was seemingly understood to involve prescribed rituals and formula that would hopefully work to expel or exorcise the demon. But we don't see any of this with Jesus. What does Jesus do? He says directly to the demon, be quiet. Come out of him. And the, and the demon obeys. So Jesus has complete and total authority over the impure spirit. He doesn't need any techniques or rituals or formula. He gives orders to impure spirits and they obey. And again, we see the epiphany theme here. Jesus is not just a wandering Jewish exorcist with some skills. It makes me think of Napoleon Dynamite. I've got skills. <laughs> Jesus isn't like that. He is, as the impure spirit points out, the Holy One of God with authority or power to act over all the spiritual powers. And here, beloved, we arrive at the gospel. The good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, ultimately Jesus becomes flesh to triumph over all the powers that oppress us. And he did this by dying on the cross. Though the cross appeared to be a defeat from the perspective of the world, it, it, it in fact was a victory over Satan and all of his demons. How? How did Jesus' death defeat the spiritual powers and authorities? Paul talks about this in his letter to the Colossians, and I'm going to read this for you now. He writes, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I think what Paul's saying here is that the enemy's greatest weapon is our sins. As long as our sins remain, the powers have ammunition. 
We stand accused. In fact, Satan's name means accuser. Accuser. But Jesus disarmed the powers precisely by dealing with sin on the cross. And he didn't just take care of sin in the abstract. Sometimes we talk about, oh, Jesus took care of sin and death as if sin and death are something out there apart from us and apart from, from the thing that looms over our lives. Right? But he died in order to forgive every real and actual sin. Every evil thought, word, and deed, every destructive behavior, every real thing that we feel shame and guilt for, they're all gone. By the cross, Paul says, Jesus canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken, taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, he disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities. They have no more ammunition. He triumphed over them by his cross. That's the gospel. So where do we go from here? Let's just review the two epiphanies from today. Number one, Jesus is revealed as God through his authority as an expert. He is the author, the subject, and the fulfillment of the law. And secondly, Jesus is revealed as God through his authority over all the powers that oppose him and that oppose us. He has triumphed over the powers by dealing with sin on the cross. So I've got kind of two possible ideas for where we might take this today. One from each epiphany. The first has to do with reading the Old Testament. I think it's fair to say that many of us struggle with the Old Testament. And, and fair enough, it's not just one book, it's a collection of books from another time, another language, another culture. There's a lot of barriers, I think, for us in the Old Testament, so we don't quite know what to do with it a lot of times. And we find it challenging, somewhat remote, sometimes violent. And if we're honest, we would sometimes rather just avoid it and focus on Jesus. But I want to suggest today that we can't really focus on Jesus without the Old Testament. We've seen today that Jesus is the author, the subject, and the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So as Christians, I believe we should be reading the Old Testament according to Christ, looking for Christ, and with the purpose of communing with Christ. That's why we read the Old Testament. And when we do this, I think we will find that we will come to know Jesus so much more profoundly than if we avoided the Old Testament. For example, what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? If we don't read the Old Testament, we're left not knowing what that means at all. Jesus is the Lamb. What does that mean? Does that mean that he likes to hang out in the country or like that he's like fluffy or that he's meek and mild or that... Like, what does it mean that Jesus is the Lamb of God? In order to know what that means, we need to read about the Passover. And we need to read about the morning and the evening sacrifice. We need to read about all those things about the Lamb and the atonement in the Old Testament. And then we know what John the Baptist means when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can only know Jesus through the Old Testament. And when we start to read Jesus, 
in the Old Testament, I think we'll find that the stories of the Old Testament become our stories. For example, when we read the Passover and the Exodus according to Christ. By the way, when I was a kid, they always used to put um, the Ten Commandments movie on at Easter time. And I never understood, like, why? Why are they putting the Ten Commandments on at Easter? This is an Old Testament story about Israel. We're supposed to be watching the Jesus film or the Jesus of Nazareth or something. Why don't they put that on? I didn't realize that the Ten Commandments was a movie about Jesus. So when we read the Passover and the Exodus according to Christ, looking for Christ and with the purpose of communion with Christ, we see that we are God's people who were enslaved in Egypt. That we were under the condemnation of death. That we face an enemy like Pharaoh. But God provided a lamb that was killed. His blood was applied to the post and lintel of the cross. And every Sunday, we eat the Passover lamb. Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us Keep the feast. So when the angel of death sees our empurpled lips, the lamb's blood on the door of ourselves, he passes over us. Through this Passover, we are now being led out of slavery. Now we wander in this present wilderness on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet. So the Old Testament is our story, and Jesus is the main character. Many of our great hymns are about this very thing. One of my favorites is Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer. I listened to it three or four times on the way to church this morning. And the Lion's Gate was closed, so it took me twice as long to get here. So I was able to listen to it a few more times. But I don't know if you know that hymn. You probably don't. You might. But all the images are from the Old Testament. Wilderness, manna, water from the rock, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, crossing the Jordan, but it's a hymn about God and me. I'm just going to read it now for you. Guide me, O thou great Redeemer, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Open thou the crystal fountain whence the healing stream shall flow. Let the fiery cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer, strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and shield. When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Death of death and hell's destruction, land me safe on Canaan's side. Songs of praises, songs of praises, I will ever sing to thee. So the Old Testament is a story about Jesus, and it's about our story with him. So let's read it. Let's read it. Second point of, I'm getting excited here. <laughs> Second point of application. And this is important. Jesus has authority over all the powers that oppress us. I just noticed the collect in a, in a new way this morning when you prayed the collect for us. Uh, I can't remember exactly the words, but it said, we are beset with many afflictions. Yes, we are. We face afflictions of various kinds. Some of these afflictions are physical or mental. And we are whole 
integrated people. We are not spirits without bodies or minds. We are composites of body, mind, and spirit. So when we have an affliction of the body, we should absolutely seek medical attention. When we have an affliction of the mind, we should avail ourselves of mental health care. Yes. But as whole human beings, we dare not neglect the spiritual dimension of what afflicts us. I think the post-Christian culture intuits this. I think they get it. Uh, and so we see around us a proliferation of spiritualities. We see New Age. We see kind of quasi or pop versions of Eastern spiritualities. Meditation, mindfulness, yoga, crystals. There may be something helpful in those. I don't know about crystals, but in some of the others. <laughs> now, the impulse to spirituality is a good one. And in fact, when we come across people in our culture who are not Christians, but have that spiritual impulse, we can, we can affirm that in them. And in fact, we see St. Paul doing that in the Areopagus. He says to the people who are, who've, got, who've got idols, he says, I see in many ways you are very religious. And he even quotes things. He says, in him we live and move and have our being. That's actually a quote about Zeus. But he's saying it's not really about Zeus. It's about this unknown God. His name is Jesus. So even though we don't have to affirm, our, our epistle is very clear, we don't affirm idolatry, but we can, we can affirm the religious impulse, the spiritual impulse with, with, with our neighbors. It's a recognition of our spiritual nature as humans. But from the Christian point of view, these spiritualities will never free us from our spiritual afflictions because the source of our spiritual sickness is sin. Crystals cannot free us from our sins. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus has the authority over the spiritual powers that oppress us. Because he has disarmed the spiritual powers and authorities, triumphing over them by his cross. Remember the story in the gospel about the four friends who lower their paralytic buddy through the roof? Remember that? Very interesting story. When Jesus perceives their faith, he says to the paralytic, remember, they're taking their friend to Jesus so that he can heal him physically. And they get him into the house. And Jesus looks at him and says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus prioritizes the spiritual health of the man. He heals his sin sickness first. And then... The text says, to show that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he heals the man, but he doesn't heal the man for the man's sake. He heals the man for the Pharisee's sake. He says to the Pharisees, so that you may know that the Son of Man has spiritual authority to forgive sins, you take up your mat and go. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority man. So the invitation today is to recognize and come under the authority of Jesus. When we are sick, we should call the doctor. Yes. But in the Christian tradition, we also call the priest. They go together. James says, 
Is anyone sick amongst you? Let him call the elders of the church who will anoint him, and the person will be healed not only on the outside but on the inside. When we face mental health challenges, we should absolutely seek all the help that is available. Counseling, medicine if needed. But we dare not neglect to fly to Jesus, confessing our sins, turning to him in the scriptures, speaking the spiritual medicine of the sacraments. Ignatius calls the Eucharist the medicine of immortality. And seeking Jesus in prayer and in community. Only Jesus has ultimate authority over all the powers. And he says to each of us today, take heart, my daughter. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven you. Let's pray.